0: Aristotle. Socrates. Kant. Hume. Kierkegaard. All consumed with the same question. What makes right and wrong? How do we define what is morally good and what is morally bad? Is it subjective or objective? Internal or external? Divine or human? The biblical book of Judges is a chronicle of what happened when each individual determined right and wrong for himself, when each one did what was right in his own eyes, when morality was in the eye of the beholder. About two months ago, my uh, family and I moved to Uxbridge. Uh, if you don't know where Uxbridge is, it's on the northeastern side of the city and you need a passport to get there. Um, and just like any kind of small town Southern Ontario vibe, you know, you have the festivals all summer in, in those small towns, right? Every weekend is the Rib Fest and the Jazz Fest and the Music Fest. There was a Scottish festival a couple of weeks ago in Uxbridge, which was really great. And then yesterday, I think it was kind of the you know, the the, the, the the creme de la creme of the thing, and it was like a fair that came through. So essentially all these rides that are temporary and very safe, I'm sure, and uh, a lot of very healthy food, and then like there was a tractor pull, because that's what we do in Uxbridge, and then, um, you know, some goat competition of like which goat is goatier or something, I don't know. And we took our kids to the fair, and my daughter is wild. She's like five years old, and she's little thing, and she wants to go on all the crazy rides. In fact, one of them she couldn't get on because she wasn't tall enough, and she just lost it. She just completely lost it because it, that one looked the scariest, right? That one looked the fastest and most spinning, and blah blah blah. And I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, like, babe, like do you understand that these rides are just like picked up and moved to the next place? So it's like, you know, if the seatbelt breaks, like, you know, hold on tight. You know, it's like there's not really a lot of safety here. And, and I don't know about you, but um, I'm not a ride person. Like when it comes to rides, like Amy does that because I, I get sick on rides. And I didn't know that I got sick on rides when I was about 12 years old. And I tried at a fair in my hometown the most significant, like, carny ride of all time. Like, the most dangerous, the most awful, like, spawn of Satan himself, like, fair ride. And it's called the Gravitron. Do you know what the Gravitron is? Somebody just said, oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. It's, uh, it's up here on the screen. This is the Gravitron. Essentially, what you do is you walk up these stairs, and then inside of this is hell, and so my friends, I was like 12 years old at the time, my friends Brian Jacoby and Carrie Adler actually uh, convinced me to go on this ride at this fair. And so I'm like, oh, that's fine. We'll go on a ride. And so I hop on the Gravitron and they strap, <laughs> they strap you into like a board, right? And they strap your hands down. They strap your neck down and your head down and all that stuff. Because when the EMTs come to take you away, they don't have to transfer you to another board. You're already <laughs> strapped to a board. So... They strap you to a board, and this thing starts to spin. And at first, it's spinning slowly, right? And it's not too bad. It's moving around, and then it goes a little faster, and then a little faster, and then a little faster. And then you start to feel the G-forces force you back up against the wall. You know what I'm talking about? And this thing is spinning faster and faster. It's like a salad spinner. You know, somebody's just, like, all the lettuce is going around, and you're lettuce. And you're just, whoa, on the edge of the thing. And then at some point, you are so stuck to this wall, they think it's funny to drop the floor out from underneath you to where your feet are no longer touching the floor, and you are just stuck to the wall of the Gravitron. Now, at some point, the ride stops. I get off the ride, and I know I'm not feeling great, right? I take two steps down this thing, and take, my foot hits the ground, and I vomit and then pass out, just I'm out. Completely just toss my cookies, and then I'm out, I'm out. Now, I don't know if you've had the privilege of passing out, but it's a real unique experience. Here's why. The first thing that happens is you lose complete control of all your faculties. Like, you have, you have lost, you lose control of your cookies, of your bowels, of, like, if I wanted to move my arm, I could, I know it's there, but I can't move arm. Nope. And it's just like, you just lose complete control. And then the other thing is, you're, like, hyper-conscious for the last three seconds before you go out. So what you know is, I have zero control over my body, and I'm about to die. That's what you think, Right? So the next thing I remember, my buddy Brian was waking me up on a, hosp- not a hospital bench, on a, on a baseball bench in a dugout trying to get me to come to, I don't know how long I was out, maybe days, I don't know. But I was just, this thing absolutely wrecks you. And Kyle was like, Daddy, I want to go on the Gravitron. And I said, you will never do that. You know? <laughs> don't, you, don't you ever say that again. You scared your daddy. So here's the deal. The reason I tell you that story is that in culture right now we're a little bit on a moral gravitron. I don't know if you realize that. But there was a time in Canada and in US and in North America that we were kind of grounded with biblical principles. We were grounded morally with these Judeo-Christian principles. Don't murder, don't kill, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, that kind of stuff. And that's what was kind of in the under kind of fabric of our society, infrastructure morally of our society. And sometimes those things were wielded as a weapon. I get that. That's not ideal. That's not great. I'm opposed to that. But but for the most part, we had this kind of underpinning, this moral underpinning, this moral floor, so to speak, that we were standing on. And then what happened was a man named Adam Smith released a book called The Wealth of Nations in the 18th century, and he talked about economic theory. And Adam Smith said this, that there is this thing that he calls the invisible hand. The invisible hand is that thing inside of you that tells you to do what's best for you, do what's best for you. And Adam Smith says, if we listen to that invisible hand, what we will do is do what's best for us, and what's best for us will be best for culture and best for society. But Adam Smith's theory was economic theory. So if he said, you know, for example, grow your crops, that's what's best for you. And then you will provide crops and corn and wheat and whatever to the rest of society. That's be good for society. Or You know, raise your cattle or open your steelsmith shop or whatever it is. That's what's good for you. And then you will be able to do good things for society in and through that. And that's because you listen to the invisible hand, that thing that's inside you that says, do what's best for you. But unfortunately, we took that economic theory and we moved it into moral theory. And we began to think that morality can be determined by the individual. In other words, morality could exist in the eye of the beholder. And so we could Do what's best for us. And then things like World War II happened, and the Vietnam War happened, and the sexual revolution happened, and the technological revolution happened. And over and over and over again, society began to spin faster and faster and faster into what's called moral relativism. And each one is able to do what's right in his own eyes. That you can determine good and bad for yourself. And it kept spinning and kept spinning and kept spinning. And it pinned us up against the side of this thing morally. And now we have no more underpinning. The bottom has fallen out. We have no anchor to look to because what's right and wrong for you might be different than what's right and wrong for me. What's good or bad for you might be different than what's good or bad for me. When it comes to a moral perspective. We are on the moral Gravitron, my friends, and when the ride stops, and it will, the end of the ride is very, very bad. It involves vomiting and passing out. There was a time in the history of God's people where they were on the moral Gravitron, so to speak. It's chronicled in a biblical book called Judges, and the book of Judges ends this way. The writer says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Morality was in the eye of the beholder. And when the author of Judges says there was no king, he doesn't mean a, moral, a mortal king, a human king. He means God was not king in Israel. There was no underpinning. There was no foundation. There was no objectivity or divine spirit Um, definition of morality, each one did what was right in his own eyes. And what we see in the nation of Israel is a decay and a a descent into depravity like, like we maybe have never seen over the course of human history. It's absolutely astounding how low God's people can go. So here's what we're going to do over the next six to eight weeks because here's what I believe. I believe that we are at a time and place in history and in culture where the biblical book of Judges has some good warnings for us. Are you with me? Yeah, it's, you've heard it said before that those who don't learn from history are doomed to what? Repeat it. Right? And even though this happened 3,000, 3, years ago, we're going to read this chronicle, this historical book, and learn and understand what happens when each one does what's right in his own eyes and hopefully learn a little bit about ourselves and our society and our culture in the process. Before we jump into the biblical book of Judges, uh, just with that being said, let's pray quickly and then we'll continue. God, uh, we invite you to speak over the course of this series. God, this book is not an easy book. It's a challenging book for so very many reasons. But, oh God, we ask you to speak to us like only you can. Speak to our hearts and minds, to our conscience, to our families, to our internal morality and to the ways in which we live out right and wrong in the society around us. We give this time to you now, O oh God, in Jesus' name. God's people together said, amen. amen. Now, Judges comes along at a particular time and place in history. So in order to understand these 21 chapters, give or take, we we need to understand where in history this took place. So we're going to do a little bit of a review of the history of uh, ancient Israel so that you can understand kind of where we are in their journey. If you remember, when God started his family, he called a man named Abraham out of a pagan nation, uh, called Babylon, a polytheistic nation, and says, I'm the Lord your God, and I'm going to promise you a couple things. I'm going to promise you blessings so that you can beat a blessing. I'm going to promise you children and offspring, and I'm going to promise you land. In fact, uh, the, the Bible says that on that day, the Lord made a covenant, that's the promise, with Abram. He'll eventually change his name to Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. See, this covenant that God made with Abraham included a land, a physical place where his family, which would eventually become a nation, would dwell. The problem with this promise here is that God says, I will give it to you and your offspring. And at this point, Abraham didn't have offspring. In fact, he didn't have offspring until he was in his 90s and his wife was in his 90s. And so when Abraham and his wife Sarah got pregnant in their 90s, they named their son Ha <laughs> Ha Ha Because that's what you name a kid when you get pregnant in your 90s. Okay, Translated to Old Testament Hebrew, that kid's name is Isaac. So Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and the blessing of God continued with Jacob. In fact, God continued his promises to Jacob and reaffirmed them and said this, on the land which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Remember, same promise to his great-grandfather, or his grandfather, Abraham. God is continuing his promises. He said, I will give you a physical land. Well, Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons are people like Dan, Naphtali, Judah, Benjamin. And those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, and they became a nation. Jacob's name eventually changed to Israel. And that nation of Israel grew. Those descendants of Abraham did indeed become like the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And they were countless, and they eventually ended up enslaved in Egypt, while they were enslaved in Egypt, God got fed up and he sent a deliverer, a redeemer, in to get them out of slavery. That redeemer was named Moses. Moses went into Pharaoh, said, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, uh uh uh, uh no. And so God sent plague after plague after plague in order to finally redeem his people from Israel, from Egypt. Finally, God uh, is able to do so and is effective and Pharaoh lets the people of Israel go and Moses leads them toward this land that was promised to their forefathers long before them. On the way, they get to the Red Sea. You might have heard this story before. They stop on the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's right behind them. They're going, what are we going to do? And God parts the Red Sea. The people of Israel walk across the Red Sea on dry ground, get to the other side. And then the Red Sea collapses on Pharaoh's army, kills them all. And the nation of Israel begins to move into this land that God had promised them. Well, Moses messes up along the way. So God's discipline for Moses is like, look. You'll be able to see the promised land, but you won't be able to enter the land that I promised to you. So you need to pass the baton to another leader. He passes it on to a man named Joshua. And Joshua and the nation of Israel now begin to the conquest of and the habitation of this land that God promised from generations and generations before. And just as Joshua is about to die, just as the nation of Israel is about to occupy this land They were promised. Joshua kind of sees something coming on the horizon. Joshua knows the tendency of God's people is not to remain faithful to him. Joshua knows the tendency of God's people is not to be obedient all the time. Joshua knows that the tendency of God's people is to forget his promises and forget the ways in which he worked and forget the ways in which he has fulfilled his promises. So Joshua, right before he dies, at the ripe old age of 110, by the way, makes this speech to the nation of Israel in Joshua chapter 24. And he says, listen, everybody. And he basically just tells the story that I just told you. He says, remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob And remember those 12 sons, and remember Moses and Egypt and the Red Sea. Remember the ways in which God has fulfilled his promises. He's always been good to you. He's always been faithful to you. Even when you were faithless, he's been faithful and walked with you as your God. In fact, I love what Joshua says in the middle of this speech. He says, God said to you, I gave you a land which you had not labored, and cities you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. In other words, all the blessings that you're experiencing now, you did squat to deserve. <laughs> I mean, you've done nothing, and I have been your God this whole time, and I've walked with you, and Joshua's conclusion is simply this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. You may could tell from my tone of voice this doesn't last very long. For it is the Lord, the people said, who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt. We agree with you, Joshua, out of the house of slavery. And who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all in the way that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord, the people says, drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And it's on the heels of this commitment that we enter into the era of the judges. Joshua dies. There is no king in Israel. Israel moves in to habitate and and take over the land that they're promised. And they begin to walk away from God. Lots of times in biblical books, you don't have like one finishes and then the next one starts. A lot of times there's overlap between the two. So there's the end of Joshua in Joshua chapter 24, and then the book of Judges begins, and it reminds us what has happened. The book of Judges chapter 2 says this, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Cool, we're off to a good start. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, awesome, we're doing well, uh, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel, and now we got a twist. Next slide, please. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And because they did not know that, they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And thus the nation of Israel, over the next generations enter into what commentators and Bible scholars called the cycle or the cycle of disobedience and judges. What happens is the nation of Israel do this. The first thing they do is Israel serves the Lord, right? Serve the Lord all the days of Joshua, serve the Lord all the days of the elders. They acknowledge him, they bow to him, and then they sin. And when I say they sin, what they do is they worship other gods. They worship Baal, they worship Asheroth, they worship these carved idols and these idols of stone and wood. And then God sends in a foreign entity to overtake them and enslave them and sometimes it's for years on end and after a little while Israel starts to cry out for the Lord oh God this stinks we don't like being enslaved and God says okay and he raises up a judge that comes in and delivers the nation of Israel and upon that deliverance they go well let's serve the Lord again and the cycle starts again I don't don't know you know, this is like free here in terms of application for Christians. Anybody been in this cycle before? (laughs) This is not new. This is 3,500 years old, friends. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. Over and over and over, they do this. In fact, the, the book of Judges records 12 different Judges, six short stories and six long stories, the ways in which God's people over and over and over again go through this cycle And you might ask yourself, well, how long? I mean, how many times did it go through the cycle and how long did this take? Well, the book of Judges kind of begins, or the era of the Judges begins right about the time of the Exodus from Egypt. Conservative date would be about 1446 BCE. And the book of Judges ends or the era of the judges ends with David being crowned king in Israel, which happened in about 1010 BCE. So what that means is over the course of 400 plus years, the nation of Israel is just caught in this cycle over and over and over again. In fact, when you picture the cycle, don't picture it like this. Picture it on its side like this, like a gravitron. It's like this. And every time they go through the cycle, it gets worse. And it gets worse, and it gets worse. And the depravity gets worse and worse. It's like a screw that dives down to the depths of depravity like you could not believe. It's absolutely atrocious. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's mind-blowing. What happens in the nation of Israel is they're caught in this cycle, and the book of Judges chronicles their descent into the depths of... Oh, In fact, it's a nice segue into one of the problems that we're going to encounter as we study the book of Judges. One of those problems is the problem of violence. The problem of violence. The book of Judges, just so you know, is very, very violent. If you're into like violent TV shows, like if you're a Game of Thrones person, you're a sinner, but uh, if you're... Game of Throne's person, you'll like the book of Judges because this is kind of what happens in the book of Judges. If you're into shows where you don't know like who the good guys and bad guys are, you know those shows? Or like the good guy does something really bad and you're like, I really like that guy and then he did this and I'm like, I'm confused now. Or like the drug dealers, like a drug dealer the whole show and then he takes care of somebody's mom or whatever and you're like, oh man, I kind of like him now. All that stuff. That's what happens in Judges, right? It's a very difficult book. And the violence that happens in the book of Judges just gets worse and worse as we go. I mean, early on in the book, of Judges, I'll just tell you a couple stories, All right? We'll study these in depth over the next six to eight weeks, but I'll tell you a couple stories. One, as there's a spy from Israel that goes into a throne room of a king. He wants the king dead. The king's name is Eglon. And so he sneaks a sword in. He draws the sword and he stabs Eglon in the gut with it. Now, Eglon was a fat man. This is what the Bible tells us now, right? I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Eglon was a fat man. So when this uh, this spy from Israel stabbed Eglon in the gut, the, the sword went all the way into his gut and the fat of his gut closed around the handle of the sword. So instead of removing his sword, he just let the sword go, and walked away. And he walked out. Well, how did he walk out without the guards seeing him? Well, what happened was when he stabbed him, he actually opened up Eglon's intestines and all his excrement spilled out all over the ground. So as he was leaving, the guards smelled this thing coming from Eglon's room. And literally the Bible says they all assumed he was relieving himself. It's a nice way to say they thought he was pooping, right? Because they smelt something. Obviously they did because it's now been spilled out all over the ground. So they gave him his privacy, right, as one does when that's going on, right? They gave him his privacy and they waited and waited and waited and they're going, Eglon, what's taking so long, right? And finally they go in and they see that their king has been slaughtered, but it was too late now. The spy from Israel has already escaped. That's story number one. Story number two is a woman tricks a man into thinking that they're going to sleep together. He lays down and she takes a stake and rams it through his head and it sticks into the ground on the other side and he sticks with a stake rammed through his head. And those first couple of stories in the book of Judges, at least for me, I'm like, oh man, that was awesome, right? That was was cool, tell that one again, right? But it gets so bad, I begin to like cringe. I don't even want to say this stuff in church. But by the time Judges chapter 20 rolls around, A woman is sexually assaulted by multiple men and then she's dismembered into 12 pieces and mailed all over Israel. This thing gets really aggressive and really nasty really quickly and we're going to have to deal with some of the violence that happens in the book of Judges. What we're going to have to understand and work through together is what is God's role in the midst of that. What we're going to have to understand and work through together is maybe I have to admit that that that's actually possible in me without moral rails. We're going to have to look hard into ourselves and do some deep introspective work because Judges is going to confront us with this really serious problem of violence. It's going to be difficult. The second problem that we're going to face is is the problem of translation. Translation. Problem of translation. The Old Testament, in case you don't know, was written in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, but we've translated it over time, and we've translated it into English. And there are multiple texts, and you can take those texts and combine them together and, and, and try to translate the Old Testament Hebrew into a modern English version or whatever language it is that you speak that's understandable and understandable. And, um, uh, Legible for, for, for a modern audience, right? And so, what I want to do is call out one of the problems in the book of Judges. One of the problems is reflected in these words, apex legomena. And you might, you know, what is that? Like, there's not a quiz after this. A apex legomena is a word that appears only once in an ancient text. So there are 1,500 apex legomena in the Old Testament. About 400 of them are significant because the rest are like prefix and suffixes or whatever. But about 400 words that appear only once in the Old Testament. So they become very, very difficult to translate, don't they? Because you don't have a lot of data points. Well, the word forgiveness appears a lot. The word God appears a lot. So the more that they appear, the more that you can translate them in in a consistent and significant way. But when a word appears only once or twice, it becomes very difficult like I said because you don't have a lot of data points well one of those words actually appears in that story that I just told you about the tent peg let's take a look says but Jael the wife of Heber took a tent peg and she took a hammer in her hand and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness so he died this is so funny to me is that funny to you because they tell this story, and they're like, and then he died. Really? I thought he was going to make it. Shocker. He's got a stake in his cranium. Okay. The word we're actually going to take a look at is the word here for went down. The, uh, the word in, in, the, in the Hebrew is watishna, and it, this is a transliteration of Old Testament Hebrew into English. These are not Hebrew characters, but that's the word there, and it literally means descended. So the stake descended into his head. There's one other place where this word appears, and it's in Judges chapter 1. When she came to him, you don't need to worry who she is. We'll take a look at that next week. She urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? This word dismounted is the same word, "watishna," descended. And in one case, it's translated went down, as in went down through his cranium. And in this case, it's translated dismounted. But the word is the same in both places. It's just translated differently. And that's the best that modern translators could do to help us understand what exactly the biblical writers are trying to convey here. But because there's only two data points, this becomes very, very difficult to translate and not just difficult to translate, but it also becomes difficult because Over time, the way we use words changes, right? The way we use words in 1950 is different than the way we use words now. And so modern translations have to change as they go. So in one particular case, in the King James Version, this verse is translated this way. And it came to pass, she came to him, that she moved him to ask their father of the field. And she, everybody say these words with me, lighted off her, don't you say that word, don't. Don't say that word in church. Watch your language. This word obviously means donkey, right? It means don- that's, that's donkey. That's what that means. But now in modern times, if we use this language, light it off, for, it means she had a couple too many cocktails, Right? Like that's what that means. And so we have to, we have to shift it for modern language to help modern readers understand. In fact, you you might think, and look, look, people think in here, it's like, man, he uses a lot of bathroom humor. Like people have told me that before. Even my daughter is like, Daddy, watch your bathroom words. I'm like, okay, all right, I get it. And I had one elder one time, he texted me after a service. He's like, one less bathroom joke in the next service. I was like, well, you want to go from seven to six? Like what? Like, this, this is good humor. Okay, so listen. For those of you who are like, man, he uses too much bathroom language, I am literally just quoting the Bible right now. Okay? That's all. Just quoting the Bible. 1970 version of the English Bible translates this text this way. When she came to him, he incited her to ask her father for a piece of land. As she sat on the ass, she broke wind. That's literally how that's translated. She, something descended, right? That's that word. That's that word. And Caleb asked her, what did you mean by that, right? This is what you're reading here. If you were a reader in 1970 of the New English Bible, right? You'd be like, so wait, she sat on her donkey and then, and then Caleb goes, I beg your pardon? That's, that's. I believe I've effectively illustrated the problem of translation. Have I or have I not? Okay, thank you very much. I don't want to have to go through that over again, all right? So here's the thing. It might feel like funny, and it is, it's funny, it's interesting, right? It's it's fascinating, textual criticism, the science of translating scripture in a way that reflects what the original uh, authors and what God intended and the ways that we understand it in this day and age. And this illustration was particularly funny. But in the book of Judges, when there are moments where it seems as if God is saying to the nation of Israel, go in and annihilate these people. Go in and obliterate these people and leave no one alive. In some ways, in some translations, that word is annihilate, obliterate. In some places, it's kick out or push out. Those are different words, aren't they? Those are very different words. And so as we journey through the book of Judges, it's going to be very important for us, not just when it comes to whether or not that girl broke wind, Right, But what exactly is God commanding? What is his role when it comes to violence and war? How is it that he uses the events of human history to discipline his people? We're going to have to be very careful with this and look very closely at the original language. And it's going to be a ton of fun. And it's going to be real hard for me. When's the last time you heard a pastor preach on the book of Judges? Why? Because John's easier. This is hard. This is hard stuff. I do it for you. <laughs> you people. <laughs> <laughs> now, Some of you are going to go home and like, is there really, does she really break wind? That is, <laughs> that is disgusting. <laughs> so here's my question. I believe 100% that the 66 books included in the Bible, Old and New Testament, are fully inspired by God. And they're written down by human beings for a purpose. And it's completely true and accurate in all that it seeks to affirm. And the book of Judges is one of those books. I believe that about the book of Judges. So here's my question What's the point? What's the point? I mean, you've got all this violence and all this war and 400 years of disobedience and you know, the nation of Israel. God's chosen people going completely off the rails and descending to moral decay beyond our ability to even comprehend. So far into moral decay that we're going. I wouldn't watch a movie that shows that, and much less you know you read it. And even the reading of it makes me feel uncomfortable. Why would God have somebody write this down for posterity? Three big ideas that we're gonna take apart and understand over the next six to eight weeks. Three big ideas. And if you're jot down notes, jot these down, you'll hear them a number of times over the course of the next six to eight weeks. Number one, the morality train must have tracks. The morality train must have tracks. When it comes to right and wrong, good and bad, the morality train must have tracks because when a train comes off the tracks, what do you have? A train wreck. And that's what happens in the book of Judges. Men and women of God, I feel like that's where we are a little bit in society right now. The the notion of right and wrong is so much left up to the individual. You do you, boo. If it's good for you, you go for it. Listen to that invisible hand that's inside of you. It will tell you good or bad. It will tell you right and wrong. And the gravitron of moral relativism has got us pinned against the side. And the bottom's going to fall out. And the thing is going to spin out. And we're in trouble. Morally speaking, we have gone so far to this kind of empowerment and individual thing, which I affirm to some extent, but we have abandoned the Lord just as the nation of Israel did. And the more we do that and the less that train is on the tracks, the more danger we're in. The morality train must have tracks. Number two, here's what the book of Judges wants us to know, that you and I make an awful God. We make an awful God. When we elevate ourselves and say, I can define marriage better than God can. I can define the rights of the unborn better than God can. Culture and society and cultural norms and mores and those types of things can define morality and right and wrong better than God can. We have essentially elevated ourselves to a God and began to worship ourselves, worship culture, worship morality, just like the nation of Israel worshipped Asheroth and Baal. We are doing the exact same thing the nation of Israel did. They just have different names now. They're not images carved of stone and wood, but they're the gods of moral relativism, the gods of individual empowerment, the gods of, 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 of privilege and pleasure. And we've elevated those things and thus compromised right and wrong. And God wants to come along and go, look, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So let me offer you 400 years of reasons that you shouldn't elevate yourself to that status. It's not going to work out well. When you get off that ride, you will throw up and pass out. You and I make awful gods. Number three, and here's what the great news about judges is, is that God can do it. Friends, this is one of our values here at Bayview Gun. It's one of the core things that drive who we are and our behavior. We believe that God always can do it. You can't do it. I can't do it, but God can. He's that powerful. He's that good. He's that sovereign. When... Tent pegs are driven through people's heads when, when, when in the midst of sexual assault, in the m- midst of abuse by the priesthood, in the, in the midst of just all this craziness that happens in the book of Judges, all this chaos. I mean, it's like Lord of the Flies, Apocalypse Now, Heart of Darkness. It's like all of these things where the rails completely come off. God could have stepped away and go, okay, whatever, just forget about it. He didn't. He may have lost control and said, I just can't even control them anymore. He didn't because he's always in control. He always has enough power. He always has enough grace. He always has enough mercy, and he can do it. And no matter how far you've descended into moral corruption, God can still rescue you. God can still save you. God can still bail you out of that mess you're in. And if you walked into this place today thinking, I'm going to walk in here and then lightning's going to strike, God says, I'm glad you're here because I can do it. And let me show you historically where I already have. This is what we're going to learn from the book of Judges over the next six to eight weeks. It's going to be hard. It's going to be fun. Hopefully that's the only time somebody breaks wind in the service. We're going to have a blast. Sound good? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you that you are good enough to record these things for posterity so that we can read them and learn from them. God, uh, help us to see this chronicle of theological history, of your history, of your involvement with the human race, of your hand of sovereignty and providence. Help us to see it clearly. Help us to not make it something it's not. Help us, God, to have the courage to make it what it is and not ignore it or kind of shove it aside. God, we desire to understand this period in the history of the nation of Israel and really see ourselves through that very lens. And God, be the kind of people that live out your kingdom values despite what culture is doing. God, we continue to lift you up together even now. In the name of Christ, God's people together said, amen.